Hello, Blenders, and welcome, welcome to episode number 88 of Real Blend, a podcast that desperately wants the Yankees to win the World Series. My name That's is Sean funny. O'Connell. That's not funny. I am the managing director here at Cinema Blend, and part of the reason why I bring up, bring up that joke is because Jake is such an avid Astros fan, but also there are four teams left in the World Series hunt, uh, and three people on Real Blend staff who care who goes to the World Series. And the Yankees are the only team that we're not represented by. So I figured I'd, I'd choose oh, them. Oh, because the poor Yankees totally need an extra fan. Because God knows they don't get enough support. Let's let's but, just feel bad for the Yankees for a second, why don't we? But also, like, I'm from New York originally, and so I should... Uh, well, you don't root, live there anymore. Root, root for the home team, right? That's what it says in the song. Yeah, but you if have they the don't win, Jake, it's a shame. Right? Isn't that how it goes? And is, you know, this got brought up on social media, and it's a good question. Is Kevin a Nationals fan, or does he just have a hat? No. He has a hat. He does not have a hat. Is he a Nationals fan, or is he aware of what baseball is? He thinks the W on that hat is uh, Whataburger. (laughs) (laughs) This episode is going to piss him off so much. All right, I will mention that uh, we are down, uh, Kevin, one more time this week, and... uh, it's because he's on an amazing anniversary trip. I'm not going to tell you guys where. Uh, it's probably top secret. Uh, but we will miss him very much so. Top he's secret. He posts about it every 30 seconds on social media. Is he putting it on social? Because I just know in our text thread he's sharing yeah. all the places that he is. Oh, okay. Well, then you guys can go to his social media and find out where he is. Um, that means that I am joined uh, by the fantastic, knowledgeable, incredibly handsome, no, charismatic. No, you're behind, you're, you started this episode behind the eight Astros ball, dude. fan. Jake Hamilton of Fox 32 in Chicago. Hello, Jakey. Good to see you, my friend. Happy 25th anniversary to Pulp Fiction. Yes, it is. And I love what you posted also, too, on your social media, that within a few weeks' time, you were able to speak with both Ed Norton and Brad Pitt and uh, and mentioned both times about Fight Club. And the best part about that, too, is you had a great question for Ed Norton. If people did not see, Jake got a chance to speak to Ed Norton from Motherless Brooklyn. Uh, and coincidentally, we might have Ed Norton on the show. I'll explain why in a little bit. Um, but he asked him this great question about uh, now that Ed Norton has directed two films, if he were able to direct one of his classic films or even a scene. I like that you gave him that out of even just like choosing a scene from one of your classic movies. Which one would you go with? And you want him to say Fight Club. You need you want, him you to need, say Fight You need Club. him on that wall that is Fight right. Club. And he did. He said it he for chose you. Fight and then you Club. got to just sit yes. back. So tell me how yes. that went. <laughs> uh, it was really cool. You know, that, like you said, you know, a lot of times we interview people we love who have started movies that we love. And we want them to talk about those movies. Not the movies we're actually there to interview them for, but other movies that they've done in their career. So you kind of reverse engineer it and you ask yeah. a question sort of hoping did they bring up this one movie you really want them to bring up? And considering tomorrow, we're recording on Monday, considering yes. tomorrow is the 20th anniversary of Fight Club, uh, I really wanted to get uh, some Fight Club stuff in there. And now looking back, my five-minute interview about Motherless, Motherless Brooklyn is about basically two minutes about Fight Club 
and then one minute about Birdman, and then two minutes about Motherless Brooklyn. <laughs> yes, it really was. Yeah. Um, well, so there's a so go find that on Jake's YouTube page, and then I'll explain the Ed Norton thing um, for our show in a little bit. I want to give you guys a couple of episode highlights. Uh, we're gonna have a few trailers that we're gonna react to this week. A slew of them dropped early on in the week. Uh, as Jake mentioned, we are recording on Monday. Um, because of some travel that a few of us have coming up. Uh, we're going to talk about the big movies that are coming out this week, and we will be discussing some of the smaller releases per usual. And again, uh, so as you see in the title of this episode, I guess I'm explaining it now, uh, we have Ruben Fleischer uh, from Zombieland 2, um, unless we don't. Uh, as of right now, <laughs> it's Monday, and uh, they're still waiting to confirm a potential interview with uh, Ruben Fleischer, the director of Zombieland 2, the director of the original Zombieland, and also the director of Venom. And I actually know that um, he likes Cinema Blend, and I've done interviews with him a number of times, and they have offered him for the podcast. They've been offering him for the podcast for a long time. They've been saying, oh, he'd be a great fit for you guys, and we want to get him on the show. And, of course, Sony was the ones who were nice enough to give us Quentin Tarantino. It's just a lot of times in this business... These things don't come together until the very last minute, and we are supposed to get him on Wednesday, but we don't know yet if we're going to get him for sure. So if we don't have Ruben Fleischer, the good news is we have an uh, interview that Kevin did with Edward Norton on behalf of Motherless Brooklyn for this podcast that we were going to hold until next week, but you might end up hearing it later in the episode. If, More as uh, this story develops, as we say yes, in the news biz. Exactly. Yes, exactly. So until then... Uh, we will get to the fact that we have um, reviews. Okay, let's see. Gabe is saying that you'll know by the title of the episode who we got. Yeah, true enough, I guess. But this will explain to you guys the limbo that we are in by trying to film uh, this early in the week. So, reviews. We have two that we're getting to read. One is short. Uh, it's from Ben K. In his subject line, he puts Kevin Smith. And he says, I will continue to listen to any podcast that has Kevin Smith on it at least once. From Ben K. So, if you guys have not yet heard cool. our interview with Kevin Smith, um, Gabe, what episode is that? Do you know what number it is? I don't know. Just go to the iTunes page and search for um, Jeez, our conversation Gabe. with Kevin Smith. What do we even do around here? Not only is it uh, just great to have Kevin Smith on the episode, but it is a fantastic uh, deep dive into a movie that you guys should be able to see soon. This week, right? This is the reboot? Next uh, week. Next week, oh, is it? No, 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 no. You're right. It's this week. It's this week, yes. Yeah. On the... 19th, I want to say it's Saturday. Um, yeah. Jay and Silent Bob reboot the uh, Fathom event where people can go and check that out. Then, and then he's starting the tour after because he's coming yes. to Chicago next week, but I think you can see it this week. Yeah, I think you can. And he talks a lot about putting reboot together and he talks a lot about getting Ben Affleck, which of course is a great story involving our own Kevin McCarthy. So if you haven't heard it yet, go back and uh, go back and Do listen to that. Do you know one. if, like, let's say hypothetically, I miss those two days for the Fathom event. Yeah. And then I can't see it while he's in Chicago. Is is that it? Is that my am I like is that my shot to see it? No. Like I don't see it after that? No, it's getting a release. I'm is pretty it? sure it's getting a theatrical release. Um I feel like a, if it's a that Fathom release, doesn't that imply that it's not getting a theatrical release? Hold on. Now I want to go check out Box Office Mojo. Um or Gabe, can you check Box Office Mojo and just see if it has a distribution? Gabe, for right. God's sakes, do something. Produce! Damn it. Produce. Okay. <laughs> I'll read in the meantime. Uh, Hokies for Life 757 said, love this podcast and their subject line. It said, Sean asked 
to leave a nice review, so I had to make sure I did my part. I'll even take sympathy reviews like this, the people who hear our call. And it's true. I do ask you guys to leave new reviews so that we can read them at the top of the show. Uh, Hokey... Hokies for Life 757 continues to say, I just recently discovered this podcast via the Tarantino episode. Okay, it's another, another one that you should go back and listen to. Uh, their knowledge of film is what kept me coming back. I love how, unlike a lot of other film podcasts and YouTube shows, they don't focus only on superhero action movies, but actually talk about real film like, filmmakers like Ari Aster. Loved that interview, by the way. Keep up the great work. Josh in Southern Virginia. Thank you, Josh. We appreciate you listening Mom to the man. show. Okay, now I'm going to click on this schedule here uh, and check and see that there's the Fathom event, but is it going to go wide after that? No, I don't, I don't. I don't think so. You might be right. You might be right that if you don't go to the Fathom event... Then it might just disappear. That's an odd way to approach a movie like this that he's been hyping almost everywhere. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. All right. Well, go see it on Saturday then. If uh, if you yeah. Oh wait, release date October fifteenth. That's Tuesday. It says. We should have done some research before we started this episode. Sorry. We Kyle. promise we're professionals. Yes, <laughs> most of the time. Um. Okay. We have a giveaway. Oh, so we have been giving. Uh, we've been telling everybody that you can go to. Um, our Real Blend Contest page that we've been uh, plugging, a link for everybody to follow because we had a giveaway for the movie Gemini Man. Now, we were having a good laugh before this episode started that, um, yes, we were very, very excited uh, for the Gemini Man people to work with us, and we were really happy to reward anyone who listens to the show. Uh, and then if you listen to the entirety of last week's episode, you know that we um, went ahead and panned Gemini Man. And then the film didn't do so hot at the box office. Um, 20 million for a Will Smith movie, and it lost uh, second place to Joker in its second weekend. However, more uh, people entered our Gemini Man contest <laughs> than saw Gemini Man. <laughs> yes, very true. Um, so these are the contest winners, quote unquote. Um, congratulations to the following six people. And thank you, everyone who entered. Um, we had a great response, and uh, the studio is extremely happy. And so hopefully that means that we'll get to give away a few more things in the future um, for movies that we like. So uh, the first winner is Jim Coppany from Chicago, Illinois. Oh, so what they had to name their favorite Ang Lee movie. They almost played like a little version of the uh, of the blend game with themselves. So I'll mention their favorite Ang Lee movie, too. Jim Coppany from Chicago, Illinois. His favorite Ang Lee movie is Hulk. Uh, Paul Marsh from Plano, Texas said Brokeback Mountain. Also, uh, you guys all win. If I name you now, you're winning. You're winning a prize pack, which is a backpack, a cell phone wallet, and something else that Gabe told a t-shirt. A t-shirt. Oh, they had a t-shirt? Damn. I should have entered this thing. I can always use a good t-shirt. All right. Uh, our third winner, Andrew Erickson from St. Cloud, Minnesota. Uh, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon is their favorite Ang Lee movie. Uh, Ray Dorda from Staten Island, New York is our fourth winner. He picked Gemini Man as his favorite Ang Lee movie. Hey. Is it though? Well, maybe he's only seen Gemini Man. <laughs> maybe that's the only Ang Lee movie he's seen up to this point. Uh, Ray, you should check out um, Brokeback Mountain. Every other Ang Lee movie. And uh, yeah, Crouching Tiger. That's also a really good one. Uh, Jacqueline Thomas from Cleveland, Ohio is our fifth winner. She said Life of Pi. And Beverly Lee from Sacramento, California, our sixth and final winner chose The Wedding Banquet. So our winners came from Chicago, Plano, St. Cloud, Staten Island, Cleveland, and Sacramento. That's amazing. That's a great representation of our Blender family being spread all around the country. And thank you to everyone 
who enter the competition, we will uh, hopefully have some other ones to to give out to you guys um, later on. Weekly poll. Jake, you're going to have to bail me out here. I hope so. Did you see El Camino? I did. Okay, good. Thank God, because I have not yet seen it. I went down to the 919 Film Festival, and um, it ate up my entire weekend. And I need to wait to see El Camino with Michelle, and so I haven't had a chance to watch it. I was about to say, if if only it were sitting in your living room, available for you to watch at this very moment. Like I literally could have watched it all day today to be prepared for the episode, but I need to wait for Michelle. She would kill me if I saw it without her. So we ran a poll, and the question was, um, so now weekly polls, we run them on Friday on the Real Blend social media account, and then we discuss what we talked about um, here on the show. Jake, here are the three choices. You will tell me which one uh, you think won. The question was, was El Camino worth it or should they have left the show of Breaking Bad alone? So essentially, you know, do you think that this sh- this ruins a legacy, uh, adds to the legacy, or does nothing at all to it whatsoever? Your choices are totally worth it. Uh, second choice is I'm kind of mixed on it. And third choice is they should have left Breaking Bad alone. I think people chose mixed on it. Incorrect. Totally worth it. 64%. Oh, so Kevin voted. And then the other two are 18% mixed and should have left Breaking Bad alone. Now, I haven't seen it. So without spoiling it for me, tell me which one you would have voted for and why. Um, I would say I'm mixed on it. No I, it, it. It answered a lot of questions that I wasn't asking. And the answers were, were, for the most part, fairly interesting. Okay. But if I had gone the rest of my life and this movie didn't exist, right. I would be just fine. Really? Okay. I I was totally fine with the idea of Jesse driving off into the distance. And then part of me like kind of liked the sitting around a dinner table with people debating what do you think ended up happening to Jesse Pinkman. And now that conversation has gone because we know. Um, yeah. You know, uh, a lot of things happened to that poor that poor boy over the course of five seasons, and to a certain degree, he the character himself does deserve resolution uh, because it was always Walt's story. Hmm. Uh, so for him to, you know, it's a it's like a nice epilogue after you turn the final page of the last chapter of a great book. Okay, you you probably could go without reading it, but it's there, so you might as well. Right, right, right. So so put uh, that on the poster. It feels like. Uh, in our pop culture world nowadays, any kind of vague questions we have about anything get answered um, yeah. with stories or movies or short films or, yeah. you know, like, do we need to find out how they got the star, uh, the plans for the Death Star? Not necessarily. I li- Yeah, but I like that movie. <laughs> I love. I OK, I take Rogue One over El Camino any day of the week. That's interesting. But are, but are they not the same thing, kind of? Or. I mean, in theory. The beautiful thing about Rogue One is that it ties up a giant plot hole that has been haunting people since 1977, which why would okay. there be a giant hole in, Death, <laughs> in the Death Star? Yes. Uh, so, I mean, if you think about it, every sequel ever, do we? you could argue, do we ever actually really need it? Um, okay. Uh, without ruining anything, are there any surprises in El Camino? Depends on if you're really surprised or not by certain people okay. that show up. Okay, I don't even mean certain people. I just mean like developments. Are there any surprising the developments? A where lot like, of it is flashback. There's a lot of it is flashback. Oh, no kidding. Um, okay. And it sort of made me feel like, I mean, it is basically like watching two episodes of, like two pretty good episodes of Breaking Bad. 
at oh. no point are you ever watching this going like this is Ozymandias territory. Yeah. Like, this is yeah, crawl yeah. space territory. At no point are you ever thinking that. If these were two episodes that I watched in a row at home, I'd like walk on a Sunday night, I'd walk away going like, oh, those are those are pretty good episodes. Those are pretty okay. good. You know? Okay. But I wouldn't go I, I wouldn't walk away going like, oh my god, that was Ozymandias. But I feel like because so much of it was flashback. That made me wonder, did Vince Gilligan not have that m- enough story to fill two hours? So he had to kind of flesh it out a little bit by... Because my belief is, if this stuff were really that important, and it happened back in the day, it would have been in Breaking Bad. Right, right. So the fact that it wasn't makes me think that it's used to both justify some of the things that are happening in El Camino, but also get to that two-hour runtime. Though I did just see an article that apparently the... The original cut was three hours, so. Yeah, I saw that too, yeah. Um, talk about a little bit about Robert Forster. He has a pretty big role in this. He has a really big role. If you're familiar with Breaking Bad, you know that he was on on Breaking Bad. Uh, just what an effortless, effortlessly, uh, I'm trying to think of the right word. It, he's one of those actors where it doesn't look like he's acting. Right. And I sure. feel like that's something that doesn't get appreciated enough. There are sometimes like like you watch something like Joker, and not to say anything about Walking Phoenix, but that dude, you you walk away from that and you go, that guy turned into he did the most acting. He yeah. he if if there were an Oscar for most acting, he would get it. Yeah, Robert Forster looks like a guy that just happens to be there, and right. they and they brought the camera. He's so natural and so easy. He he'll never be the guy that does the most acting, but he makes acting look the easiest. And we know this profession well enough to know that it's not. Right, right, and and this this the the moments that he has with Aaron Paul in this film, they're they're well written, they're beautifully acted, and it just makes you realize how much of an underappreciated talent he was. Because that's awesome. He doesn't. He did. I I feel like in his time, I know he got an Oscar nomination, but I feel like maybe we didn't truly appreciate him to the degree that we should have. And uh, and the fact that he passed on the day that that movie came out, I think um, you know, there's a little bit of tragic irony to that. I mean, that's William H. Macy too, right? You know, like William William Macy and Gene Hackman are the two people that come to mind where, you know, they whatever character they're playing, now they have the ability to totally ham it up if they want to, mm-hmm. you know, and each of them have uh, in different roles. But also like Gene Hackman can play like a senator in uh, something like Birdcage um, right. or a coach in Hoosiers. And every single time you just assume that they're, that they are that person. <laughs> like he is that guy and the cameras just happen to be catching him at that point. You're so right about like people who make it look effortless. Uh, it's an uncelebrated uh, tactic because we're so easy right. to gravitate to, uh, oh, they chewed the scenery in this one and what a showy performance and let's reward that kind of thing where I think, it, I think you're right. It's much harder to just blend into the material and serve the character so well that the that the line blurs between uh, I'm an actor and, and I'm the actual character that I'm playing. How many times have you walked into a junket room with an actor who does something like that, who kind of just blends in and, and, and is a person, and it takes meeting that actor in person for you to almost appreciate how good of an actor they are? Because then you go, oh my God, you are not like, like I just assumed you would be this person, and you're not. Right, You're not yeah. this person at all. Like sometimes it actually, and obviously not many people have the privilege to be able to do that, but sometimes it almost straight up takes being in a room with an actor for you to realize how good of an actor they are. Do you know who that happened to me recently was Michael Pena. Um, oh, interesting. I, I think you just assume Pena is this 
person, this high energy, fast talking personality, because he does that a lot. Mm-hmm. And instead, he was very quiet and extremely insightful, you know, yeah. like gave the kind of answers that we never get in junket rooms in that when you asked him a, a big picture question, he stopped and really thought about it and, you know, gave you a perfectly um, relatable answer to what you assume Michael uh Michael Pena has gone through, and then I was like, "Oh, damn, that's right. You're really good. You're, you're really was that good when we this. got him for the mule? For the mule? Yeah, yeah. that was that was my most yeah. recent uh, example of that. So, anyway, um, news. We're going to shift over to news because we have some major. Do you think trailers we can get Clint Eastwood for the show to discuss? No, no way, no, never. Well, not with that attitude. <laughs> I, I don't think we'd get. I don't know if Clint knows what a podcast is, and I'm not going to necessarily fault him for that. Like Clint shouldn't have to know what a podcast is. He's beyond that at this point. But well, that's my new goal. <laughs> All right, we'll put it Gabe, down. Gabe, get on that. Do I was job. thrilled that we got him for a junket. You know, yeah, like that was that. kind of dumbfounding to me. Um, so yeah, I would love to know someone pitching uh, Clint Eastwood on on a podcast, and he'd be like, "I do what now, Clint? You just have to open up a voice memo and put it in front of you so that Gabe can get clean audio." Uh, What's a Gabe? Know. I don't know what that is. What's a Gabe? <laughs> is he gonna rap me? <laughs> uh, all right. So right before we started this show, knowing that we were going to discuss it um, on the podcast, I watched the trailer for Robert Downey Jr.'s uh, Dr. Doolittle movie. What, what is it called? Is it just called Doolittle? It's called Doolittle. Man, I don't know. What is that movie? I don't know what that movie is. I don't understand the concept of Dr. Doolittle. Is it just that he talks to animals? I don't, I I don't know so. enough about Dr. Doolittle. I, I, you know, I... Did Eddie Murphy my, do this already? He did... I, uh, a much better version, I would say. Uh, I don't. I don't know what to make of this. This sort of seems like it's going to be 2020's Evan Almighty, which is a big budget Universal <sighs> film that involves an A-list star talking to animals. That's going to bomb. It looks. Um, you know what it struck me as, and this is a weird comparison to make it to because I think it, people end up really liking this movie. Is um, Walter Mitty. Secret Life of Walter Mitty. Oh, I love Walter Mitty. See, that's interesting because I'd never have gone back to revisit love it. Love that. Oh, I've watched I, it probably five or six times. No kidding. See, it struck yeah. me as something that's just overwhelmed by whimsy, right? Like it's uh, a star. There's literally a character named Sean O'Connell in it. It is. That is pretty cool. That that got a really great icebreaker uh, <laughs> in the junket room for Ben Stiller. He got a real kick out of that when I got introduced. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I just, I, Robert Downey at this point can make anything he wants. Um, and this is what he chose. Yeah. I mean, this is his, I mean, I know you have no control over when movies come out in relation to other movies, but this is his first movie following Endgame. Like right. this is the one that says, here's the direction I'm going. And it's Doolittle. <laughs> it's a January release date. Yes. And it's Doolittle. And it's, I'm basically doing a poor man's version of my Sherlock Holmes character. It's what it looks like, doesn't it? With the long yeah. hair and the the and hair the and the British accent. Yeah. All right. Let's see. Former doctor turns to treating animals. Do you really need to read the plot description of Doolittle? Creatures. When Doctor Doolittle discovers he can communicate with the animals. Oh, please tell me more. Jake, he embarks on a fantastical adventure. Oh well, I mean, if it were just an adventure, I'd opt out. But you didn't say it was fantastical. Fantastical. Uh, you're right. That what speaks volumes for this one is the January 17th release date. Yeah. Uh, you know, not that there are dumping grounds on the uh, on the release date landscape anymore. You can almost open a good movie anytime. Yeah, but they're usually Oscar movies that came out in New York and L.A. in late December, <laughs> and they're just now coming to your town in January. This is very, very true. So, uh, yeah, that and the trailer did nothing to really inspire much confidence. So let's shift over to Pixar's next one, uh, Onward. And yeah. 
This is the the voices of two major Marvel persons, uh, Chris Pratt and Tom Holland. I was going to say Tom Hiddleston for some reason. I'm sorry. Tom Holland uh, as brothers who, again, embark on a fantastical adventure. (laughs) So many fantastical Uh, adventures. My gosh, we're overwhelmed with them at the at the box office nowadays. Um, But the director of this is the guy who did uh, Dan Scanlon, who did Monsters University and Monsters University. Oh, see, you make that face. I love Monsters University. And it reminds me very much of a movie that I when you when they announced it, I was like, no one needs that. Like, we don't need a Pixar. Yeah, I, and I saw it and felt that way. Oh, no. See, I totally disagree. I really liked Monsters University a lot. I thought the idea of sending those guys to college and sort of playing off of the, the I don't know, their, their journey wasn't fantastical enough for me. It wasn't, but you might get a lot more of that at a, onward. Um, you know I'm not a fantasy guy, um, but this looks pretty intriguing to me. Are you are you interested in this? Uh, the the, the thing that hit me, and we've talked about this extensively over the course of 80-plus episodes, is... I feel like we're on the verge of a really heartbreaking father-son story. Um, that what struck me about the trailer was it was the first time that any of us knew what the movie was about. Which, if you haven't watched the trailer, it's they uh, cast a spell to bring back their father who has passed. But something goes wrong with the spell and only brings half of him back, his legs. So they have to go on a fantastical journey to uh, to somehow bring the rest of him back. Uh, and And we were talking before we started rolling today. About what is the tragedy? Because you know something just heartbreaking, Coco style is going to end up being sad about that resolution, and it's either going to be that they. I, my first thought was they bring him back, they get him for a moment before he disappears again. Gabe's theory, which was also interesting, is they bring him back and it's not him; it's the wrong guy. Oh, interesting. Okay. Um, but one way or the other. Our, both of our theories are leading toward grown men weeping in the theater while their dad, while their children look upon them and try to figure out what's going on. Well, that's what Pixar does. Yes. You know, when, especially when they're dabbling in original creations. Like, yeah. I'm really intrigued by this because it's not a sequel. Um, yes. yes. And, you know, not that the Pixar sequels have been bad by any stretch. Incredibles 2 is entertaining for what it is. Yeah. Toy Story 4, I'm still going to hold on to the fact that Toy Story 4 is not essential in the least bit. Um, although the reaction from people around our Cinema Blind offices is that they love it. Like, they love it. And I think it's the highest grossing of the four Toy Story No, ones. there's no way. Not more than I, three. I think that might be the case, Gabe, if you could Gabe, check that out. I, um, I bet it's three. But yeah, I, I also agree that um, when Pixar goes for originality, whether it's Coco or Inside Out, not not the good dinosaur necessarily, but for the most part, when they bat for originality, um, they're going after heartstrings. And yeah, Onward looks like it's really going to yeah. go in that direction. The I, animation um, looks great. I was not crazy in love with Coco, but the last 10 minutes of it just, oh my God, ripped my heart out and stomped on it. It was... I, I thought visually Coco was amazing. Yeah. Like the visually, land of yeah. the dead, the world of the dead was a really cool place to yeah. explore. I remember um, just thinking it was particularly longer than it needed to be. Yeah, that's I guess one of the I things I think about whenever I think about that movie. That's one of the things that stands out to me. Uh, let's get to Jungle Cruise, which is people sort of wondering, oh, wait, Gabe is going to drop in. Well, don't put in links, Gabe. Just write the answer. Now I got to like click on the link and go to where it is. Toy Story movies at the box office. Toy Story 4, the highest grossing movie. Is it? Four hundred and thirty-three million. No, we're doing worldwide, baby. Do worldwide. Come on. Versus four hundred and fifteen. Worldwide, 1.069 billion versus 1.067 for Toy Story. No! 
And it's still in theaters. It's still playing. No! Toy Story 4 is now the highest grossing Toy Story movie of all time. That's sad. But, I mean, it makes sense because they're just adding new audience members every single time they put a new one out. Families are still going to go. But Toy Story 4, they just hung out in an antique shop the whole time. I know. Listen, believe me. There was no fantastical adventure going on. There was no fantastical adventure. In the least bit. It was very perfectly average. Like, what what was the pitch meeting for that? Like, let's put them in an antique store. That'll... Get the kids. Right. They're like, Bo Peep and a fork. <laughs> so it's so tweeted. It's having, it's having uh, like a midlife crisis. Someone tweeted, and I thought this was really funny. They said, nothing speaks to uh, Disney more than the fact that I'm paying $20 for replacement parts for this Forky doll that I have for my kid. <laughs> <laughs> Which is literally supposed to be a character made out of trash. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Disney. All right. Um. Speaking of Disney, uh, Jungle Cruise trailer. I'm going to fall on the on the side of this might look like a pretty good idea, but it's probably going to end up being more hokey than people want it to be. Um, it's The Rock and Emily Blunt teamed and everyone instantly uh, in, on social media, their reaction was like, this looks like Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, m- matched with Pirates of the Caribbean. And instead, the vibe I got was Lone Ranger. Like, I got a Lone Ranger. Interesting. Interesting. And. I don't doubt that those two can be great together, but I just don't like, well, I watched it a couple of times because I was writing about it and, you know, he's running the Jungle Cruise trailer. It's kind of like a scam. Like, you know, he's, he's working all of the bits to trick the people that he's, that he's bringing through and it has to call to mind the, uh, the ride. Obviously it's a lot of references to the hippo showing up and going behind the waterfall and all that jazz. And, but then they have to eventually go on an adventure and I just kind of, I got this sense of just like, uh, I don't really, I don't really know. So I... Did, were you impressed by the? Yeah, I, I was. Well, I, would, I don't know if I'd say impressed. I was pleasantly surprised. Um, mm. I, you, you said Raiders. My first thought was the 1999 Mummy with uh, Brandon Fraser okay. and Rachel Weisz. Okay. Uh, and and a lot of that movie rested on the shoulders of their chemistry and their charm together. They were so good on screen together. And I feel like a lot of Jungle Cruise is going to rest upon the chemistry between uh, uh, Dwayne the Rock Johnson and Emily Blunt. And just based on. A little bit of the trailer, and then based on some of the early interviews they did at D23, it really seems like they have like a very fun chemistry between the two of them. Yeah. Um, and I feel like that's sort of going to be the um, the thing that makes this movie. And I remember, I remember, you know, in the months leading up to Pirates of the Caribbean, people had a lot of like, how could they possibly make a movie out? And granted, there's not going to be anything in Pirates in, in Jungle Cruise that is going to come close to the um, the the epic storm that overtook the world like uh, Jack Sparrow. Yeah. But that being said, I think there could be potential for surprise in there. I think it could be fun. Um, and it, as someone who clicked play on that trailer, expecting to spend two and a half minutes going, all right, like this is a film. This exists. Like I walked <laughs> out going like, all right, like that, that one's a pig. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you think they'll have four jungle cruises like they did with four Pirates of the Caribbean movies? Oh God, I hope so. <laughs> there were four it, Pirates of the Caribbean movies. That, Means four Hawaii junkets. Do you know what people are going to leave Jungle Cruise talking about? Um, is Emily Blunt the action star? Because I think no one really gives her enough credit for her action roles. Like, Looper is a great film uh, that relied on her being an action star. Obviously, Edge of Tomorrow. Yeah. Uh, you know, people want to automatically make her Mary Poppins. And she's terrific at that, yeah. mind you. But she's a great badass action star. I mean, can um, we please get that Edge of Tomorrow sequel yeah i know right her and crew i mean we get we get so Cruise. many sequels that we don't want for right. love of god 
Give us one we actually want. I even want to say that they have an idea for it. I think Macquarie well, said yeah, that he's got Yeah, a- Macquarie and, yeah, that they said that it's like an actually essential idea that would make sense. Okay, here's the question. Would you trade the upcoming back-to-back Mission Impossible movies for the Edge of Tomorrow sequel? No. Thank you. That's exactly no, I why I we're mean, not getting on, the Edge no. of Tomorrow sequel. Fair enough. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. Right, yeah. Yes. No, I would not. I would not. All right. This week in movies. Um, I would trade you seen- most of Phase 4. Stop it! Why? Why just, the just Marvel saying, hate? You, I'm not hating on Marvel. I would just trade most of Phase Four for the. Okay, you're telling me you would rather see Black Widow, right? And and Doctor Strange Two and Mrs. Thor over <laughs> McCory's next two Mission Impossible movies. Oh wait, no, no, I thought you were saying over the Edge of Tomorrow sequel. No, no, Mission Impossible. Well, some of those. Um, Doctor Strange, I really do want to see. Uh, Dude, pick a lane, brother. Third Spider-Man, I definitely want to see. Yeah, but that's, yeah, I guess that's in, I guess that's in phase four. But uh, but I really do want to see those back-to-back mission movies. <laughs> I think they're going to be, I think they're going to be pretty great. All right, on a whole, I'd probably have to, if I had to pick one or the other, I'm going to pick the two mission movies. Hot damn! Only because. Um, Doesn't matter, no because, one cares. Moving on! Mac- Fair enough. All right. Uh, this week in movies, we always get to talk about movies that um, are opening that we haven't seen. And so this will be fun. Uh, have you seen Cyrano, My Love? I, you know, I truthfully don't know where Gabe gets these titles from. I think a lot of these he's making up. It's like a Mad Lib Just to game. make it seem like we haven't seen anything. Have you ever heard of the movie Cyrano, My Love? <laughs> I have not. No one has. Literally, Gabe made that movie up. <laughs> and uh, neither of us have seen it. Okay, so Jay and okay, Silent Bob. Okay, from now reboot, on, we, you should, we should play a game where you have a yeah. bunch of movies that are coming out, but right. one is made up, and we have to try <laughs> to figure out which one is the one that you made up. Well, and then, like, one of us will lie and be like, oh, I think I saw a screener of that. Yeah, yeah, I think I saw that. I think I, I think I, you know. And then, and then I'm going to oh, be the I, one I dumbass that's like, you made up Jojo Rabbit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, Jay and Silent Bob reboot we discussed. Uh, we have not yet seen, but apparently find the Fathom event. It's either the 15th or the 19th or maybe both. And then, of course, Kevin and uh, Kevin Smith and Jay Muse are going on the Roadshow tour, which, of course, we are big supporters of Kevin came on the show and talked about that. That was fantastic. Zombieland double tap uh, here. We're recording this on Monday. As we've discussed, my screening in the market is Tuesday. Uh, yours is also as well Tuesday. Too, right? Do you feel like there's a weird amount of no buzz for that movie? Like when I was in uh, LA this past weekend and we drove by a billboard and it, when I saw the release date, I went, Oh my God, like that comes out in a couple of days and I just don't feel like anyone's really that psyched for it. That's true. Um, although I've heard good things. I think that's all I can say. I've heard good things. Well, um, no, I'm not I'll, saying it could very well be awesome, but I just feel like no one's talking about it. Well, I'll tell you something really funny. Uh, Michelle was in California with me last weekend. And again, Michelle like has a very cursory knowledge of what's going on in the film industry. She hears everything we're talking about, but absorbs very little of it. Like, God bless her. She just doesn't really care what's going on. And we were riding in an Uber to the airport and we passed a billboard for Maleficent and a poster in the bus stop for Zombieland. And she said, 
why does Burbank have all these old movie posters up? <laughs> said, uh, <laughs> actually, no. Nope, <laughs> that's just a Maleficent sequel and a Zombieland sequel. If that's not a giant metaphor for Hollywood, I don't know what is. <laughs> she was genuinely perplexed as to why both of those uh, posters were still hanging up in Burbank. So, uh, yeah, and Maleficent, Mistress of Evil is the next one on our list. Uh, my screening is tonight uh, after we record here. Jake, I'm assuming, have you seen it yet? No, no I'm good. No, I think Kevin did see it, though. Kevin did see it. Kevin did the junket. All right. Well, he's off gallivanting. So uh, The Lighthouse is opening. Oh, I so badly want to see it. All right. So this one's Robert Eggers' new film. He did The Witch. Uh, It is a black and white period film where in the 1890s, uh, two men uh, arrive at a lighthouse off the coast of New England uh, to work for several weeks at, at the facility. And one of them is played by Willem Dafoe. The other by Robert Pattinson. And Defoe is the veteran who's been working at the lighthouse forever. And Robert Pattinson is the newcomer who is probably running away from something. Um, but you don't know 100% uh, how this all plays out. And then um, as people who watch The Witch know, Eggers likes to really play around with uh, what you are watching, what's real, what isn't real. And you watch these two characters essentially descend into madness uh, because of the isolation because of the way that Defoe is constantly messing with Robert Pattinson's character. Um, and it's just a, um, it's an uncomfortable watch. It's a, it's a tough movie to sort of get through. It's one of the movies where like, there's a ton of symbolism and you'll leave discussing a lot of stuff that you watched and saying like, first a, was this real or was that real? Or was this fake? Or was that fake? But not, not in a Joker kind of way. It's more like, um, was this part of the guy's, um, uh, losing his sanity was this uh amplified because of what the movie is trying to say it, it's interesting i'll tell you that i i still don't know if i like it <laughs> I, I don't know if i like it but i think the performances are unbelievably good i like both of the guys in the film i just and it's hard to say but like once everything is said and done once the whole movie plays out i can't say with 100 percent. i don't i don't think i liked it um I don't think it's as because it's not clear cut and, and you can end up discussing it a lot. And I'm not sure if the answers are there and that usually bothers me. So um, Gabe is saying, if anyone in the audience cares, producer Gabe absolutely loves it. Uh, it's one of his favorite films of the year. Now, look, Gabe, if you want to say something, you come on the show, man. Kevin will lose his mind because they shoot it in a traditional four, three uh, aspect ratio. So it just looks old timey. It's just the sort of squid not quite a square uh, in the way it's presented. And Eggers does an amazing job of like filming in raw elements. It's like constantly raining. Um, it's dark and gloomy because it's inside the lighthouse and everything. And you're, you're watching what could be a play. You know, it could just be these two guys on stage going at each other for the longest time. The atmosphere kind of leads to it. But um, do you know when you're going to get a chance to see it? I don't. I looked up when it's coming. I missed a screening in Chicago because I was off gallivanting somewhere else. Um, and I looked up to see when it was coming out. That is uh, near the top of my list. Parasite, I'm finally seeing this week, which I'm excited about. Oh, good. About. Yeah, nice. I'm finally seeing Parasite. But no, uh, which, and I like to see it on the big screen because I like to see a four by three film on the big screen. Yeah. Um, so I hope that it opens near me, which, you know, I live in Chicago. I shouldn't be asking too much for a movie to open here. Well, I was um, looking up the Chicago, Chicago Film Festival for you also, too, because that's coming up. Yeah, it soon. might be. Yeah, it might be a Chicago Film Festival. I just hope that because I know that if I get the screener in because it's about to be screener season for those, you know, that we've talked about getting the screeners for uh, uh, award season. And right. I know that if it 
arrives uh, on my uh, on my table before it opens that I'm not going to be able to have the strength to. to I'm, I'm just going to end up watching it at home, and I, no. I don't want to have to do that, but I will. And a big part of the reason why you need to go see it is the sound. I mean, it's really he plays around with. There's a, a foghorn. My, my TV has off. sound. No, no, it's not the same. It's not like even there's a movie I saw at the film festival 919, which is up in Chapel Hill over this past weekend called Waves. And somebody yes. said to me, you need to see it specifically for the sound because the director uses a constant barrage of song choices. Um, and it's true. Like once I was in the movie and it was and the music was constantly going, I was like, oh, yeah, this this is right. This is you can't replicate this at home. I understand that um, in a really great theater that actually plays the sound loud. The theater where we hold our press screenings all the time, um, there's a conspiracy going around that they have a really old clientele uh, during the day that would complain if the movie's too loud. So by the time we get there for the 730, 7 o'clock or 730 press screening, the sound is way down. So like we'll be hearing a, a uh, Hobbs and Shaw or some such nonsense like that. And it's just like it's low and it it bugs the hell out of me. Oh, that why am I going to the nuts. theater? Oh, that would drive oh, me dude. nuts. And I've complained multiple times like the highbrow critic that I am. And I have no pull whatsoever in the market. So nothing changes. Um, but it's really frustrating to go to the theater and then be in a screening where the where the sound is uh, is insufficient. So and I, I'm I'm not Sean joking is with banging you. his fist on the table going, I want to hear Willem Dafoe's farts. That's exactly what I was going to bring up is that I'm sad Kevin's not here for the discussion in the lighthouse, because if anyone has listened to this show uh, even once or twice, you know that Kevin McCarthy, our third host, loves <laughs> farts. He loves body <laughs> humor jokes. He he is arguing for us to do bathroom blend all the time. Uh, Gabe, uh, G- Gabe, I don't know how Gabe feels about it, but Jake is single handedly uh, being the the defender on that wall that will not let bathroom blend happen. <laughs> oh, Gabe does not want to do it's it either. So stupid. I'm kind of open to it. Uh, I, I don't think are. it's a bad idea. Um, but the, but the Willem Dafoe's farts are a significant part of the lighthouse for reasons. And see that, that that actually worries me. No, I mean, just when you're isolated with another man in a in a confined space, submarine. Yeah. Uh, okay, okay, let me ask you cabin. something. I hated Swiss Army Man. If yeah. I hated Swiss Army Man, am I going to have a tough time with Lighthouse? No, you might want to just you might want to wait for that screener. <laughs> pop, that, <laughs> pop, that, pop that screener in unless it's, you know, at that beautiful theater that's right across the street from your apartment. But uh, if you have to travel to it, I maybe don't do that. All right. Which brings us to Jojo Rabbit, uh, another film that's opening this week. Jake got to interview uh, Taika Watiti and the cast. Um, you I'm going to say you liked this movie more than I did. I like oh, it. Interesting. You I actually that. love it. Is that right? Love this movie. Yeah. Love this movie. Uh, you know, didn't really know what to expect going in. I really look forward to seeing it again now that I have a better idea of what it is. But it's so many things that work together and work together well that uh, and each one kind of has its own moment to shine. I mean, it is it is this beautiful uh, mother-son story. It's a beautiful uh, story about what it means to be a 10-year-old kid. But then again, it's also, you know, and it's like this quirky, uh, you know, comedy about a kid with an imaginary best friend that gets him into trouble. But it's all <laughs> under the umbrella of World War II in Germany and Nazis and, and the murder of millions of Jewish men, women and children uh, during the Holocaust. And so it's all of these things that shouldn't exist under an umbrella. 
Mm-hmm. It's like it's like a it's like a carnival it's like a carnival taking place underneath a, a rain umbrella. It's all these things happening under this like that he's able to fit so much underneath, and it's and it really and, and it without giving too much away. I think and, and and Gabe, feel free to cut this if you think this is a spoiler statement. I think what I loved most about it is that it really lulled me into this false sense of security, in that it was a fun, quirky little comedy that kind of had me chuckling and it sometimes had me laughing out loud and really had me going like oh this is cute like this is fun and then about halfway through it almost hits you over the head with a sledgehammer and reminds you this is a movie about the holocaust and there is there you can put you can add humor and you can add comedy you can add whatever but there is no escaping what happened and i think that's when i really realized how much i love that movie was okay. that it was able it was able to do both. You know, I we had just when we did interviews for uh Jojo Rabbit, we had just come from doing interviews with Edward Norton from Motherless Brooklyn. And I know we're gonna end up reviewing that movie later, so I don't want to get too much into it, but it is related in the sense that my one of my knocks was on Motherless Brooklyn was that there was no one on set to tell Ed, Ed Norton no. He was the writer, he was the director, he was the producer, and he was the star, and that movie just seemed incredibly self-indulgent and there needed to be someone there to be able to pull him aside and say, like, dude, maybe scale back. And Taika Waititi has the same number of roles in JoJo, but I never felt like the movie was self-indulgent or the result of no one telling him no because he's a filmmaker first and an actor second. I mean, you you guys have read this. He didn't even want to play Hitler. They went after several A-list actors and then finally ended up having to take on the role himself. But he's a born filmmaker first, and then we're lucky enough to get him on camera every once in a while. Um, but I just I would not be surprised. I know we're going to the awards season. I won't be surprised if he walked away with a director nomination, a screenplay nomination, and a best picture nomination. Now it won People's Choice Award at uh, Toronto, which I thought was a really great indicator for it because a lot of films that take home that uh, prize convey that into a best picture nomination. The one right before this was Green Book that actually won the prize, um, and I found it interesting that it won a uh, audience award because to me the tone is the, is the thing that. And again, maybe you're right. Maybe I want to see it a second time because I'm, I didn't know what to expect at all. And it, it never delivered what I expected, which is fine. I mean, that's more my problem than the film problem. Um, but it, I think it tries to wear a lot of hats. Um, and I'm not quite sure if all of them fit. Uh, without giving away you know, much of what happens in the movie, like Jake said, it is a fantastic story between a mother and a son. This little boy, uh, Jojo Rabbit, who, uh, like Jake said, uh, has an imaginary friend who's, who's Hitler. Um, and not even necessarily Hitler, but a 10-year-old's version of who he thinks Hitler is. Right. Yeah, this boy loves Nazis, wants to fight in the German army during World War II. And so, yeah, so the, the Hitler that speaks to him is the one who would encourage him very much to be a Nazi. Um, and Scarlett Johansson, I thought, was unbelievably good in the movie. Uh, she's fantastic as Jojo's mother. But then there's another story, too, that's um, between this girl played by Thomas and Mackenzie um, who is the Jewish girl who's hiding in his wall. And I think that that's revealed in the trailer, Yeah, right? it's in the like trailer. That's, yeah. that's part of it. So then you have to follow that relationship too. And then there's a lot of other stuff that has to do with the war, and that's where Sam Rockwell's character comes in. And I think, I, I have to see it again a second time to see how well all of those fit together, because I kept watching each of those and, and trying to figure out, like, well, which one is the movie? You know, like, which... And I'm, it's all of them, and I get it. You know, he's trying to sort of, uh, sort of say a lot with all these different things. Um, and make jokes. And and one thing I heard from a lot of people who saw it, it played at 919, the Film Festival 919 this week in Chapel Hill. A lot of people who I know came out of it and just said, it just wasn't funny. 
Like, they actually found it not funny. Um, and I think it's front-loaded with its humor. I think the jokes come yes. really fast early on, and then it stops wanting to be funny. But what happens is every time he kind of feels, I thought, that he needed a laugh because things were either getting too heavy or too introspective, then he brought the Hitler character back. Like, that was the a crutch for the movie to lean on a bit. And Which say, is interesting like, because it's based on a book, right. but Taika is the one that created the whole imaginary, Hitler is imaginary. Like, that, that aspect was created by Taika. That's not in the that's book. That's not in the book? No. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, see, then that, then I really believe that he kind of thought going through it, he needed elements of, uh, like, a funny thing to sort of break the tension. Yeah. And he just chose to <laughs> inject Hitler as Taika Waititi would, I guess. Yeah. So I would definitely recommend it. Um, and I, I really do want to see it again because I just don't think, it's, it's certainly not the kind of movie that um, just on a surface level you can kind of judge it. I think it's something that you have to see at least once or twice, once you sort of figure out what he's trying to do with it. What kind of player do you think it is uh, moving forward into the award season? Um, that's a great question because this year is so competitive. And also, uh, when it comes, I mean, Golden Globes can you know really kickstart a movie that needs a kickstart. What category do you put that in? Do you put it in drama or comedy? It's got to be comedy. Yeah, I think that they would definitely push it in comedy. I think it has a much better shot at the Globes. Yeah, than I do seeing it. Um, although you know. <sighs> It's such a weird year, man. It's and it's a weird little film, yeah. you know. It I mean, really and like on, and by no means is is Rotten Tomatoes, you know, the end all be all of what direction a movie. But it's not right now, based on the people who saw it in Toronto and have started to see it at screenings. It's not super high on Rotten. I think last I saw it was like seventy six percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Like it's not, that, yeah, insanely that's insanely high. Like, I'm not, I'm not one hundred percent sure how many people are really going to get behind it and want to fight for it. You know, I don't know if it has that passionate sort of. Uh, 81%. 81. Okay. So it's gone up since last I saw. That's better. That's 104 reviews. So I think the curiosity factor of just like, what is Taika Waititi doing with a Hitler comedy? is yeah. going to get people to come out to it. I just wonder if this is going to be the film that people want to fight for. I don't know. Fair enough. We'll see. Um, okay. We have an interview, uh, in this week's episode. We just, Who uh, is at it? this point, well, we, you and I personally at this point right now, I uh, don't know what it is. Uh, it's I can't wait to find out. Ruben Fleischer or it's Edward Norton. Um, I'm going to throw it to the interviewer right now <laughs> <laughs> with a headline that you all know what it is. Uh, so enjoy our current interview with <laughs> Ruben Fleischer. No, uh, no, no, <laughs> and uh, we'll talk to you after the episode, uh, after the interview. We'll talk to you after the interview and continue the episode. Gabe, just get me out of this. Excellent. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. The movie was a lot of fun, dude. It was really funny. Thank you. I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Yeah, it was very good. All right, we're going to start. Um, okay, Blenders, uh, as we promised, we are able to sit down with Ruben Fleischer, the director of both Zombieland and the new movie, Zombieland Double Tap. Hi, Ruben. How are you? Hey, Sean. Good to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me on. Of course, man. It's always a pleasure to have you on. We're big fans of you and your films. Um, I got to start where all the Zombieland films, all two of them, uh, now start. I'm considering it a tradition. How do you pick the Metallica song for, for Double Tap? <laughs> um, well, the first time around, it was true, just fortune. <clears throat> we, uh, I don't think we designed it to have Metallica start, but we tried lots of songs up against that super slow-mo uh, apocalyptic uh, imagery and uh, for whom the bell tolls just resonated in such an incredible way that we all were very excited about it. Um, and then it was a matter of getting Metallica to give us permission. Um, 
which at the time we didn't have a huge budget and uh, they were incredibly generous and cool and let us uh, use their song, um, which they haven't licensed a ton. So <clears throat> second time round, not wanting to repeat ourselves too much, but uh, it just felt like the perfect thing to just remind the fans that uh, Metallica is our, our uh, official theme song for the opening. <laughs> and uh, this time around, I was really happy to um, um, be able to use Master of Puppets, which is one of my all-time favorite Metallica songs. And it really feels like it just fits perfectly uh, with that sequence. You know, you say you fear repeating yourself, but I will tell you as a fan, I would have been pretty disappointed if you didn't start with a Metallica song. It's it's funny, it's just become it's become the thing of these movies. Well, I mean, where do you go from there, right? Right, exactly. Yeah, you don't even want to update it. You want to find somebody 10 years later. Yeah, it's just like, uh, it's just a tough bar. It's kind of like with the Bill Murray. You know, when you start with Metallica and Bill Murray, there's not many places you can go beyond that. So sometimes you just have to, uh, follow the old edict. If it ain't broken, don't fix it. Well, okay, but that's not to say you guys don't have a lot of new things in this film for sure. And that's what I want to get to next is uh, I, I do love all the new characters that you brought in. Obviously, Luke Wilson and uh, Rosario Dawson are standouts for it, but I, the Zoe steals the show. Um, so if you could really just talk about um, all of the new additions and how you kind of decided on which personality types you wanted to introduce uh, into your already established Zombieland family. Well, that was one of the really fun things about um, about doing this movie was figuring out how to expand the world of Zombieland in a sequel um, and trying to think about who would still be alive and what kind of char archetypal characters would still be surviving and be good comedic uh, balance for our pre-existing characters, you know. I think that Woody, Jesse, and Emma, and Abby are all kind of archetypes in themselves. And so by including um, um, somebody who's like a match for Tallahassee, it felt like we needed someone who was a equal or even beyond him. And, and Rosario certainly fits the bill. She's just as tough and cool and, uh, and badass as he is, and they share a common love for Elvis. And then when thinking about who's kind of the opposite of Wichita, this sarcastic, you know, very cool woman, um, we were really excited to to come up with Madison, who's kind of the antithesis of those things. She wears pink, juicy couture tracksuits. She's um, like Von Dutch hat. She's a little bit stuck in the Lindsay Lohan Paris Hilton era of pop culture. And um, yeah, she's she you know, she could very easily be mistaken for a dumb blonde, but she's certainly not that she's very bright um, and she stands up for herself. But uh, yeah, at times she can be a little uh, ditzy, I guess. It reminded me a little bit. Are you familiar with um, Will Forte's show Last Man on Earth? Did you watch that at all? I only saw the first couple episodes, but uh, I don't think he'd met anyone at that point. The challenge that they face is anytime they brought in new characters, you have to sort of explain like, okay, well, why would you guys be here? You know, and I kept sort of thinking about that as you were bringing in new characters into your film. Yeah, I, I think um, everyone has to have, uh, you know, Columbus's reason for being are the rules. 
Wichita's is that she's never going to trust anyone. She'll, you know, she'll, she'll uh, get one over on them before they can get anything over on her. Tallahassee's just, you know, the most badass. So uh, Madison, you know, she survived in large part because she spent the last 10 years in a freezer in Pinkberry. Um, <laughs> and, and, uh, and then the hippies, these, um, there's a whole bunch of uh, hippie pacifists who have given up violence, who um, uh, all live in a commune together. And their, their means of survival is more avoidance. They've built this incredible... Um, commune, I guess, and uh, have surrounded it with a perimeter wall, and they live on the rooftop so no zombies can get to them. And it's kind of a, it's kind of just like an idyllic uh, place to be. It kind of is. Um, I had to imagine you had a lot of fun watching Zoe and Emma uh, build the chemistry. Can you talk about the, how those two played off of each other since they're so different on screen? Yeah, that that was a really nice thing that evolved over the course of shooting. Um, we we had so much fun making this movie at Atlanta. And I think that, you know, I'm sure Zoe looks up to Emma in a real way. Um, and Zoe's just a really great person to have around and was so, so funny on set. I mean, some have said she steals the, you know, every scene that she's in. And um, she definitely on set was the one who made everyone else laugh the hardest. So I think there was a instant appreciation um, for her because, uh, you know, it's a tight knit group, those four. And so I, I imagine it must be pretty daunting to come in as the new kid. Um, but Zoe came in with guns blazing and completely blew everyone away. And I think very quickly earned everyone's respect for how funny she is. And I think Emma, you know, was it's so funny because when we made the the first one, she was only 20 which is younger than Zoe is now. But now that she's, you know, 10 years later, uh, kind of an elder statesman with uh, an Oscar under her belt, I can imagine that Zoe looked up to her in a real way. And I think Emma was happy to kind of, you know, take her under her wing a little bit. I just love watching Emma Stone's facial reactions in scenes where she doesn't even have lines. She's just fun to watch. <laughs> it's so funny you should say that because, you know, when you edit a movie, you watch it um, thousands of times maybe. And... Um, at this point, I know every line by heart and, you know, there's not much new, uh, except every time I watch it now, I just watch Emma. And you're exactly right. Like you hit the nail on the head. And I'm impressed, actually, because it, it, the things she does are so subtle that probably unless you're really focused on them, you'll miss them. But I, I mean, if you watch Emma in every single scene, she's just so present, so uh, real and authentic and just the things she does make me laugh so hard. They're super <laughs> subtle, but she's she's just a incredibly talented and brilliant uh, actor. Oh my, I actually think she conveys so much, you know, with facial, I, I end up just watching her most of the time when she's on screen because I know she's she's moving the story forward or, or reacting to things in ways that, uh, that I, I know I'm going to appreciate. Yeah, she's the greatest. All right, is uh, someone on the creative team an Elvis nut? Because of all places that you guys could go, I, I didn't expect Graceland, but um, it's pretty central to the film. Yeah, uh, I think it all kind of sparked from Woody. That story about um, that he tells Rosario at, at the Hound Dog, where when they're at the bar, about Elvis and doing an impression standing on the table is actually a Woody Harrelson story. 
um, that the writers incorporated into the film. That's he, awesome. He's definitely a um, uh, someone who, you know, he didn't have to work on his Elvis impression for this movie. Like that's something he came to the table with. So I think it, it just all the thing I love most about this movie is that it all comes from character. And so you can imagine that Tallahassee is a big Elvis nut. Um, and so at the beginning of the movie, he tells Little Rock about it and mentions it and says, you know, I want to go there with you someday. And so I think it's really sweet that once she parts ways with our heroes, um, she still ends up going someplace that means something to the guys she's trying to get away from, which I think is really sweet and allows them to track the story, the story to, to there. Uh, that's awesome. Um, I also want to get into the fact that, you know, it is, it is very character driven, the film. Uh, for sure, but you have an amazing shot, um, and I'm not going to give anything away be- beyond saying that it's a, a fight in a motel. That's a single take, you know. It's uh, or is it? Is there a stitch in there? Talk, talk, talk to me about the construction of that scene and and when you shot it and how difficult it was to put together. Yeah, it it, it appears as a single take, but it actually took a day and a half to film. It's a uh, series of shots. I think there's seven total that have. Uh, seamless um, cuts between them. So it was really fun to shoot because collectively as a group, you know, there's four, well, actually six people fighting together in one space. And uh, we would, everything was uh, pre-blocked, obviously. We knew exactly what we were going to do. Uh, And the stunt coordinator and the stunt team had laid it all out for us beautifully. But then when it was our turn to shoot it with the principal cast, we, you know, we'd shoot it up to a certain cut point, do it as many times as we could for that take to make sure it was perfect, and then uh, carry on forward with the next piece. And I was having the guy who runs the video tap output all the uh, clips to me, and I was editing them in my laptop on iMovie as we were shooting it just to make sure all the, you know, cuts were seamless. And oh it was really fun because at the end of each new piece, we were like, it was like we were building a, you know, building the sequence linearly. And so the cast would watch like after each chunk was added. So, yeah, that looks good. Is everyone cool? You like what you did? OK, we can move on because each one was a one in of itself. You know, you couldn't change it once it was locked because we had to match the ins and outs. And so. If everyone was good, okay, moving on. And then uh, at the end of the whole thing, we got to watch the whole fight in real time right there on set, which was such, such, such a, we, I think we all felt a huge sense of accomplishment. That's incredible. Is that normal? Does that happen on set a lot? I'd never done it before, <laughs> um, <laughs> but, but I've never done a super ambitious pretend winner before. But, uh, but yeah, it was really, really cool. Um, and uh, I have the, the, the outtake from the, video tap still on my computer and it there's a really nice moment uh, at that final scene uh where emma goes wow those those guys are a bunch of dicks and then there's like a <laughs> couple like heavy breaths between her and rosario and then you hear me say cut in the background and then you just see her you know lose her character and just start screaming yeah we did it like because everybody <laughs> knew that was like the perfect take and it's just like seeing her face shift from Wichita to Emma Stone just being like really happy. It's it's a, an incredible moment. 
please put that on the DVD. I would love to see that. <laughs> I think that'd be awesome. Um, okay, obviously, you know, you guys are, you, well, you, you play with the, the zombie genre in so many different ways um, in the first one and this new one. But of course, with this one, it's the introduction of new types of, of zombies. And the one I'm most curious about is just the T-800. Uh, talk to me about putting that one together and how you decided to introduce them into the story. Um, well, as you may have read in uh, multiple interviews, we've indicated that part of the reason the movie took so long was because there were uh, so many different drafts of the script and we had to get it right. Um, but we, um, yeah, we came up with the idea originally they were called super zombies, but the, the basic premise was that Tallahassee had kind of grown tired of uh, killing zombies, he lost his passion because it just wasn't fun anymore. They didn't present a challenge. It was kind of a, you know, a meta commentary on maybe a little bit about zombie culture and how just zombies were, had gotten a little boring. Um, and, and so he'd lost his his fire or spark. Um, and so he doesn't even bother killing him because they're just they at that in that draft. I think they were all kind of like the homers. They just were kind of like idling around and didn't present much of a threat. So uh, when the super zombies come, it was like, you know, someone had uh, lit his spark once again and he had a reason for being. And that finally, like, the world's greatest zombie killer had met his match. And so um, I think that's in there a little bit, but but, um, the basic idea is that up until this point, you know, they've survived 10 years relatively easily outsmarting the zombies but um now with these t-800s there's a real threat and especially since little rocks with a hippie with nothing but a guitar to protect them they feel an added sense of urgency to go uh and rescue her you know what i love too about it is when you guys break the fourth wall when jesse sort of narrates to the audience um he very much references things that he knows exist in our world that aren't present in, in theirs. Uh, I think that's a really interesting way for a narrator to have understanding of an audience <laughs> and the things that are, uh, that are available to that audience and, and letting you know, like, he's like, in a world without YouTube, you know, this is what we do to kind of entertain ourselves. Um, that's got to be, that's all uh, Rhett and Paul, I would imagine, right? Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's uh, Paul uh, Wernick and Reese special. It's really entertaining. I love the way that they do that. You mentioned the 10 years uh, between the two films, and I'm just curious, who's, which character of the original batch were you most excited to come back and revisit and, and kind of see where they were 10 years later? That's not fair. That's like Sophie's choice. Um, <laughs> you know, I think the obvious answer is Lil Rock just because she's the most changed uh, from before. But... I, I was really just excited to get everyone back together. It was kind of an all or nothing deal. Um, and so having the original cast back, especially given all the success they've had and um, the fact that I've worked with each of them um, on, on one of my subsequent movies, you know, Jesse was in 30 Minutes or Less, Emma was in Gangster Squad and Woody was in uh, Venom. It, it was like just a family reunion, and we were all so happy just to get to work together. Um, Ruben, a bunch of times writing about the film as it came together, I swear we wrote stories that Dan Aykroyd was part of this. Did, would, did we misreport stuff, or was did his scene get cut? No, he was never in anything. There was a earlier draft a long, 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 long time ago uh, that featured not only Bill Murray but the Ghostbusters, 
I think it was long enough ago that perhaps even Harold Ramis was still alive. Um, And I think that that draft leaked somehow. And so somebody took it upon themselves to enter it into IMDb, but it was never anything that we actually pursued. Is that hard to sit on where you want to sort of correct people and say, no, we're not doing that? Yeah, it doesn't come up that much. I mean, uh, I guess we just did. Yeah, got you. Just did. Um, all right, well, I'll get you out of here on this one, too. I do want to shift gears. You mentioned Venom, and I'm just curious why you didn't return for the sequel. How come you're not back from Venom 2? Well, I was busy getting this movie done. I think they're, uh, they're already shooting that film, and I, I just finished this a couple of weeks ago, so the schedule uh, didn't allow it. It really was just a, a matter of timing. Yeah, I mean, they. I think they're trying to get that movie out for next fall uh the, like two years from the original release and yeah I, I uh i basically went from finishing venom i had a week off with my family and then went straight into prep on zombieland 2 so i i've been making a movie for the past two and a half years uh with hardly a break so i i definitely uh wanted to get this one finished you know and make it the greatest i could and then uh and then I'll probably take a little breather for myself. It's a really good problem to have. Are you slightly disappointed you're not able to continue in that world, though? I think I'm really excited to see what they do with it. Uh, I, I'm really excited to see what, what he does with his character, especially. Yeah, for sure. I'm glad, I'm, I wonder if he signed on, you know, thinking that you might continue since you introduced him. Yeah, we'll have to see. We will have to see. Ruben, thank you again so much for jumping on with us. It's a pleasure to have you as a guest on Real Blend. Hopefully we'll get to talk to you again soon. I really appreciate it. Thanks, uh, thanks for uh, uh, checking out the movie, and uh, I really hope anyone listening to this uh, enjoys it. Yes, go see it, guys. It's really funny. If you love the first one, you're going to love this one, too. Zombieland Double Tap is in theaters starting on Friday. Well, uh, with, we would like to thank that person. <laughs> that person for coming on the show. I really and, uh, enjoyed when that one member of Real Blend asked that question about the film that that one person was talking about. That was a great question. A very insightful, something I always wanted to know about uh, that, that film, that project. <laughs> How long it took to come together. This is really hard to do when we don't necessarily know who we got. No, I mean, in all honesty, um, we really want to thank all of the guests who come on Real Blend and all the studios who help make these uh, interviews a reality. And we definitely know a bunch of other ones that we're banking uh, to have on the show very soon. So keep it locked here for um, our weekly conversation with people who are making the movies that are coming to theaters that you guys love. Um, talking about movies that people love, we are at the Blend Game, and this is one of the uh, most fun experiments that we've been doing. Uh, I love that you brought up this idea, dude. This was a really fun one. Um, it's Decades. Uh, We've done 60s blend. We've done 70s blend. We are at 80s blend. And I I know I've said this before, but the the interaction with people on social media this week was fantastic. I'm pretty sure every movie released in the 1980s was chosen by someone. (laughs) Yeah, right. Exactly. Uh, It proved how difficult this one really was. Although I'll say the two movies that I saw the most mentioned by people um, were Back to the Future. A ton of people said Back to the Future. And, um, oh shoot, there was one other. See, Did you put I it felt in the like notes? Raiders was the one I saw the most. You saw Raiders a lot? Um, yeah. maybe it's just Back to the Future. I saw a lot of that. Yeah, there were, there were a bunch of, I mean, obviously you could pick any of those ones. Um, I get to go first. And, and again, we, Jake and I were having this conversation before we started this week's episode. It almost feels like our choices are a little bit anticlimactic. If you've paid attention to the show, 
uh, in any way, stretch or form. The 80s, 90s, uh, and even the 2000s are such influential decades for the film fans that we have become. So we have talked at length about movies that mean the world to us. And so it's really funny, like when we started talking about 80s blend, I started getting so excited about like all the choices I could make and and why I would want to make these choices. And I thought about Back to the Future and I thought about Ghostbusters and I thought about all of these movies that mean the world to me. And then someone on social media, and I, I forget who it was now at this point, they were like, duh, idiot. Like before Endgame, your favorite movie of all time was Die Hard. So it has to be that. And I was like, oh, geez, you know, you're right. It has to be uh, John McTiernan's first Die Hard film. And it is. It's it's um, it's the movie that that had made me essentially who I am today. I, I love it's a perfect movie. Is it still your number two of all time? Oh, yeah. Yes. Behind is, Endgame. Endgame. I'll tell you, how, not, not to def- default too much into Endgame conversation, but I want to remind people this. Um, I, I love Endgame so much. I, I freaking love it. And every once in a while, I'll remember that it exists and I own it. And then I'll just be like, oh, I can watch Endgame right now. And then I'll put it in my DVD player and I'll start watching it again because it's here. By I, choice? Exists. Yes, I love it. I love everything about it. Like I can go and just pop in the and so I might skip right through to the time heist or I might skip to the end battle against that. I also but, wish I could have done that. But those scenes are there. They still exist. They're in this movie. And and so this past weekend um, in Chapel Hill, I keep mentioning Chapel Hill. I'm overdosing on that festival. I hosted a panel um, with Joe Latiri, who is the head of um, VFX supervision at Weta. Oh, you probably that guy's actually, awesome. I, I interviewed him uh, in New Zealand. He is a he legend. Is amazing. I, have a, I have a book signed by him. He is awesome. He's great. I mean, dude, he was uh, instrumental in designing the dinosaurs for Jurassic Park. Oh, God, uh, yeah. Multi-Oscar winner. He worked on, he's a four-time Oscar winner who has worked on VFX with Scorsese, Peter Jackson, uh, James Cameron. He was raving about uh, Avatar 2 and all the work that they're doing on Cameron's next films. I know. See, I I get more excited hearing him rave about Avatar 2 than I do Jim Cameron. Yeah. Rave about Avatar 2. So at the end of the presentation, um, Joe had a sizzle reel of Weta uh, projects that they're working on. And in that sizzle reel, they showed all the Endgame scenes. And I was like, oh, my God, you worked on Endgame. Like, I got so excited because of the fact that they worked with Brolin and they designed the Thanos battle. Yeah, I'm all in on Endgame. And so it speaks to the fact that it dethroned Die Hard, which to me, again... Is a perfect film. Like it's it is it is that film that I could watch every day of my life and never tire of it. I love Bruce Willis as John McClane is the ideal type of hero that I love in a movie. He is an everyday guy, in over his head, uh constantly has to think himself out of a problem, you know, trying to stay one step ahead of the bad guys, failing every once in a while. I love heroes that fail. We don't get that enough. Too often they are larger than life and nothing can stop them. There's nothing more boring to me See, uh, in a Hobbs movie. Shaw. <laughs> See, the John Wick franchise. Um, I they need killed it. his dog. I understand that. I understand that. But I mean, there's only so many perfect headshots you can pull off in a movie before I start to check my watch. Um, yeah, I just think I, I think that everything about the first I'm not, I'm not selling anybody on the first Die Hard. Obviously, you guys know what an amazing film it is. But again, I go back to the fact that it's it's the first R-rated movie I got to see in a theater uh, where I begged my parents to let me go see it just because I knew like the trailer looked amazing. 
And then sitting there watching it, it just it completely transformed me. It can transformed me into someone who realized whoever works on that uh, is what I want to do for the rest of my life. To the point where when we were in L.A. Uh, just recently and I didn't even know that uh, Kevin was staying in the hotel that was right next door to the Fox yeah. building, Nakatomi which Plaza. is Nakatomi Plaza. And we um, I w- and I was talking to Kevin as we drove to the theater. We we're in Uber. And we get out and I look up and there it is. Like there's Nakatomi and I'd never seen it before uh, like up close. You know, it's kind of seen on the horizon as I drove past on cars. And I get out of the Uber and we're walking into his hotel and I see it. I just started walking toward it like like a beacon. <laughs> Kevin's like, oh, yeah, that's right. Like, let's go take pictures. And I was like, dude, it's that's it. Like, how many years have I watched the outside of that building and watched everything happen? Like helicopters flying around. Because it was a Fox movie. So they just used their own building. Yeah, they used that building. I'm looking back like down the street now and where the car is coming in, where they shoot the bazooka at the car. And I'm like, God, this is the street. Like, this is all of it. Like it was all coming together. And I have never been that excited to like, how many sets have I been to in my life? That's a set. Like that's a location for a movie that I adore and you could go to it. You can just walk to it. It's there. So obviously uh, for 80s blend, my pick is Die Hard. (laughs) Die Die Hard is a perfect action. Like, you know, there, there are a handful of movies that I would, Open the folder labeled perfect and place inside and die hard is one of them. Your pick then is my pick is arguably and I know like over the over time there have been movies I'm like, oh, yeah, I think this might be my favorite movie of all time. But, but I really think if I were to dig deep into my soul and there are potentially even like gun to my head and there are, I was strapped to a lie detector test and someone asked me, what is your favorite film of all time? OK, I think. I'm 99.9% sure deep down in my heart the answer is The Empire Strikes Back. Okay, interesting. It's it's just it one, it is the best film of my favorite series of all time. Okay. And it does a lot of the stuff that you kind of describe about Die Hard, which is it takes our very um, archetypal heroes and kind of breaks them down a little bit. I mean, the mm-hmm. original 77 Star Wars was all about those classic archetypes that George Lucas kind of modeled Star Wars after. And, and, you, and you, you know, they kind of followed a, a, a very classic, I mean, perfect for that particular film, but a very classic formula of how things, the beats that needed to happen, things mm-hmm. like characters that needed to act a certain way. And once A New Hope was completed, then they were free to go, but what if they didn't? Yeah. What if they didn't do that? So you have these, you have the, the foundation uh, and you have the archetypes that you think you know going in and then it just goes, fuck you. Now watch what we're going to do. <laughs> and the bad guy wins. Right. And we lose one of the heroes. And a relationship that we think might work or might not work goes two completely different directions. And this band of, of, of good people that we love gets shattered and broken up. And we're left with uncertainty. And there's this unbelievable surprise ending, where, which I would imagine at the time... Because I grew up just assume, just knowing that that was a thing. The Darth Vader. Did was you Luke's really? Father. You yeah. didn't know? No, I, I grew up. No, I grew up knowing. Like that was such a famous line. I grew up. Like, yeah. Because yeah. I would imagine. Like, t- like tell me, tell me if I'm wrong. That's when you saw it in theaters. When you saw you it in theaters. Knew before I did. You saw it. I did. Oh. Um, because the reason I got into Star Wars is I think I was like seven or eight when they re-released the special editions. Right. Um, in theaters to kind of get people hyped for uh, Phantom Menace. Okay, and that's yeah. when I asked my dad, like, "Wait, what? Like, what are those movies?" And you right. know, I've, I've told the story before. My dad t- turned around in slow motion, like he'd been waiting his entire life for me. To, you know, <laughs> but by that point, they were already starting to 
show like clips and stuff. And of course, the clip you're going to show is is a, I am your father. So I kind of sure, yeah. I think honestly to answer your question, I think the question I asked my father that got him like, oh, we need to go watch these. Is wait, is Darth Vader really Luke's father? So I guess yeah, maybe yeah. I didn't know going in, but uh, I mean, when you saw it in the '80s. And there was that, what, three-year gap between Empire and Return of the Jedi? Oh, yeah. Did yeah. you walk out just assuming Vader was telling the truth? Or was there a oh, this yeah. idea of, oh, is yes. he potentially lying? No, no, no. It never crossed anyone's mind that he was lying. Um, and in fact, I think the reason why that twist is so devastating is because, not that there wasn't gray area and vagaries, but, but up until Empire, um, most of your traditional blockbusters were very clearly defined of good guy, bad guy, you know? And how are the good guys going to triumph over the bad guys? And I cannot recall too often uh, taking the bad guy and giving you any reason to humanize him, you know, but to connect him to your lead in that way. I think that's what blew everybody's mind. So, no, I don't think anyone thought like, oh, he's lying to him or trying to trick him. Nowadays, I think that. That deception or some level of deception has happened so many times in movies. Well, I mean, like even even similar like with Last Jedi, we're all questioning whether or not Kylo Ren was being honest about Ray's sure. parentage. Yes, you know, right, he, exactly. You know, we're, we're all questioning. You know, we spent the last few years. Okay, was he really telling the truth, or is it just sort of setting up? But Empire Strikes Back is the most beautiful shade of gray. I've ever seen in my entire life because right. all the characters, you know, there are moments where you start to question, is Luke going to go over to the dark side? And then you start to question, well, like if Anakin you turn into Darth Vader, is, is there potentially good? Into, there's, this, you know, even Lando, who was supposed to be Han's friend, is kind of this scoundrel and he kind of turns him over, but he ends up helping him at the end. Like they're right. all these, it, it, it's so beautifully complicated and just leaves you exhausted and leaves you going just like, what do we do? Like, where do we go from here? Well, it is and, a and perfect people, movie. You forget it is per It is perfect for that reason because people also forget that when that movie ended, um, nowadays when a movie ends on a twist, we, we kind of know when the next one's coming because we announce yeah. sequels and release dates. Yeah. When that movie ended, everyone was like, Oh, th- that can't be the ending. And right. like, when is the next yeah. one? Like, no, and our did. hero lost a hand. Yeah, right. Exactly. He lost a hand. I mean, do you remember when, and, and I'm not going to knock these movies. Cause I actually really like all three Gore Verbinski pirates movies. Okay. But when two and three came out, they were like the dates were already released. Like one was yeah. coming out one summer, the other one was coming out the next summer. And the second one ends with Jack Sparrow being eaten, being eaten alive okay. by the Kraken. Okay. And imagine if that had happened in movies 40 years ago, where you didn't right. know when the third one was coming out and the last one ends. I mean, there was not that there wasn't drama to that, but it's sort of like, well, okay, he's obviously going to be fine because he's coming yeah, back because right. the next one comes out and, and like, six months or 12 months i know and now unfortunately we know too much we just know too much about um contracts and (laughs) oh we got three more movies one of the questions i really want to ask um and this is sort of looking forward to the future um we get to uh interview arnold schwarzenegger and linda hamilton (gasps) coming up we do uh, coming up in a few Kevin weeks for uh, he might combust before I kind of want to go in before Kevin just so I can I like catch him whenever that. he comes out of that room yeah. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. We, do you remember and correct me if I'm wrong because I was pretty young when these movies came out but when T2 came Stop out reminding me how young you were before well no because I, I'm trying to like remember like 30 and, I, and I can't remember it, it, I don't know if like if this is something I remember <laughs> or just what I've been told or maybe I remember incorrectly but when T2 came out in theaters, they didn't openly advertise that he was the good guy, did they? No, not at all. So that no. was a surprise. So that's something I actually want to ask Arnold and Linda Hamilton is, can you do that? And that was such a big deal yeah. that Arnold was the good guy. 
Yeah, no, and I, I, mean, I, I think if you go back and find some of the earliest trailers, they used footage like, remember when he's coming through the, um, he's got the roses yeah, in the box. Yeah, and, and then there's the shotgun. The yeah. shotgun. Because those um, scenes out of context, he still looks like the bad guy. They very much played that up yeah. of, I think they showed like Linda Hamilton in the Institute and she's yeah. like running from him yeah. and things like that. Like, yeah. And even the T-1000 out of context could look like the good guy. Yes, they definitely did not lean into yeah. the fact so, that So to your was. point, like, can they even, and it's it's sad that, that I feel like kids will never experience that, but can you even do something like that anymore? Mm. I mean, I guess, honestly, the closest thing I can think of is the fact that, um, I mean, two examples. I, I mean, remember when the Super Bowl a few years ago, there was like, oh, when this, in, in 30 minutes when the Super Bowl is over, there's a new Cloverfield movie that's going to be on Netflix. Yes. That was yes. pretty shocking. A bad and, one. And, yeah, but a bad one. one, but still, that was a pretty <laughs> cool move. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, a Breaking Bad movie going from we don't even know if they've shot it yet to it comes out in three weeks. That was very cool. That was I mean, like that's the closest thing I can think of. I don't know if I've said this on the show or if you and I have just discussed this in person, but I would have loved if Joker uh, just advertised itself as an, an Arthur Fleck movie. Yeah. And you never knew that he was Joker until you went to the yeah. theaters to see it. Yeah. But no one would have gone to see it. That's the problem. Nobody would have gone to see it. Yeah. But that thing is dumb. We should talk about the box office of that movie. I think that that movie. Gabe said he was Jokered out. Ah, <sighs> okay. Gabe does more to sabotage this show than anyone. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, Kevin McCarthy is vacationing right now, uh, but in true Kevin fashion, took the time to record his own version of his 80s blend pick, and um, I think he's going to include Lauren, too. So why don't we throw to his clip and find out if uh, both of them shared their 80s blend pick I with the real blend family. I don't know what Kevin, right? I knew what you were going to pick, Die Hard. I don't know what Kevin's going to pick. No, I really don't know either. Um... So let's find out. Let's all find out together as we listen to Kevin's 80s blend pick. Hey, guys. Kevin here. And Lauren. And we are uh, currently in the uh, in the East China Sea, right? We're in the East China Sea. We were in Okinawa, Japan yesterday, and now we are sailing to Nagasaki today. Um, and we're actually in the future because it's Tuesday, October 15th here. So it's actually our wedding anniversary over here today. Yeah. And that's the crazy part is I, I know it's, well, technically speaking, as we're recording this, it's 1030 <laughs> in the morning on Tuesday. It's 1030 at night back on the East Coast. So we are celebrating our wedding anniversary and we wanted to chime in for the 80s blend because the 80s is such an important year in our lives because we, we were both born in the 80s. Uh, I would argue the 90s were more influential in my movie taste because that's kind of when I was growing up with Pulp Fictions and pulp and Face Offs and, and you know, The Rock and all those movies. But the 80s has a very specific um, nostalgic value to it because of kind of the way it affected the way we all grew up. So um, I'm going to let Lauren go first with her 80s blend pick. I am curious if I'm right at all about my uh, predictions for Jake and Sean's, uh, who who I know uh, I've already given them on the show, but I'm curious, based on knowing them as well as I do, I would assume that Sean went with Die Hard and Jake went with Empire Strikes Back, but I know sometimes we can find different routes to find what movies meant to us personally over the years. I think those are good predictions for them because hasn't Sean said that Die Hard was his favorite movie of all time until Avengers Endgame? Yeah, Endgame. Okay. Was, was, See, I know things. Yeah, and then and then, and then Jake obviously is the one of the, is the biggest Star Wars fan I know. So yeah, um, all right, I'm gonna let Lauren go first with her pick for '80s blend. Um, again, that one of the things that we run into every week with this game is. The difference between favorite and best, and I think uh, we've all decided and know that when we're mentioning these names, these movies, these are personal favorites, personal right. movies that meant a lot to us, not necessarily the greatest movie of the 80s. Mm -hmm. um, but all right, here's Lauren's. 
I mean, honestly, for me, there's tons of films that came out in the 80s that I love and that I'm obsessed with and that, like, have shaped me. But this is literally, like, no question, no competition for me. Back to the Future. Part one, right? The first one. It came out in 1986. And two technically is the 80s, right, as well. I think it's 89. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I was born in 1987. The first one came out in 86. I just grew up on that trilogy in the 90s. My brother and my family and I would just, like, rewatch it all the time. And I think I've said this on, like, Twitter and I've said to this day, like, I think Back to the Future is the most rewatchable movie of all time. I just don't think, like, you could literally, could be on TV. You could be over at a friend's house and it's on. Like, it's just something where whenever it's on, I'm going to sit down and watch it. The characters of Marty and Doc are so iconic. And even people who don't watch a lot of movies know what Back to the Future is. And it's just like one of my favorite trilogies of all time. Like, I absolutely love part two and part three as well. But but the first one's definitely my favorite. And it's like just one of the it's like one of my it's in my top five favorite movies of all time. So it, with that yeah. being said, like that's easily my pick. It's one of the best movies ever made. And Zemeckis and Alan Silvestri, that entire film is so iconic. Yeah, score. And, and everyone knows the score. Right. And it's also so uh, influential on our culture. I mean, you're talking about, in my opinion, I think it's one of the greatest trilogies of all time next yes. to Lord of the Rings and obviously the original Star Wars trilogy. Um, and as, as, as much as I know Jake loves Star Wars, I personally find Back to the Future to be something I can re- I rewatch more often. Um, well, than, it's hard to make trilogies yeah. like like Indiana Jones. I mean, like I, I'll, yeah. that. I mean, like that one. That trilogy is like the Last Crusade is like my personal favorite over Raiders of the Lost Ark. I know there's a lot of Temple of Doom fans out there as well, but like that whole trilogy is just so yeah. amazing. And I almost feel like they can't make trilogies like that yeah. classic like that anymore. Yeah, that's why I, mean, I, I will always still consider um, Indiana Jones to be a um, trilogy even though there's a fourth one. All right, so my pick is actually going to be personal um, in the sense of uh, I went with the original Ghostbusters. And again, I understand this is not the greatest movie of the 80s, but from a personal uh, standpoint, uh, looking back on that film, it was such a big deal for me. I remember getting my proton pack as a kid. I have really fun photos of myself wearing a proton pack with my dad you know, we're all playing around. I mean, that that was such an iconic thing. And that, and that movie was so, in my opinion, ahead of its time and also has incredible performances. I mean, Bill Murray, Ivan Wright, I mean, every, every, I mean Ivan Reitman directed it, obviously. Harold Ramis is amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is Sigourney Weaver. It was just a movie that meant so much to me from a comedic standpoint, but also from, it also scared me as a kid. Even the second one had some scary elements with the, with the painting. Um, but the first <laughs> one to me, uh, is a great example uh, of why practical effects, in my opinion, will always be better than CGI. I mean, you got to think about the way they created that film in the 80s uh, with the minimal special effects that they had. Specifically, the scene that I always go to is the scene when the eggs start cooking themselves. <laughs> and so Gordon Weaver opens Even up that... that's scary. Yeah, and Weaver opens up that refrigerator door, right? And, you know, she sees those, like, the, the ghouls <laughs> in the... Uh, in, you know, it, it's a really cool... Zool! Zool, yeah. <laughs> um, it's a really, really cool concept for a movie. It worked really well. I really enjoyed it. Um, and it's a film that I will always look back on with fond memories. It's funny because, like, I was going through a list of all the 80s movies, and I was going in between a lot of different things. Like I could also have even gone with Karate Kid here because Karate Kid was a film that 
um, dealt with bullying. Uh, his character was bullied and kind of overcame those odds of being the new kid in school. And I always thought that was an, I, mean, I, I wasn't, I, I guess technically I did deal with that. I was a new kid in school in 10th grade and I dealt with bullying. Um, so looking back on Karate Kid, as much as I love that film, uh, I would say that that was a very close second. If you're looking at best, I do want to cheat real quick and just mention one film that I think um, I almost went with. That's I, the, Kevin's literally been trying to figure out his pick for yeah. the last 48 hours while we're on the cruise. Yeah, and I couldn't, I couldn't <laughs> justify choosing this, but I think one of the greatest movies ever came out of the 80s, and that was Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing. And I remember studying that in college and that film having such an impact on me from a cinematography standpoint and the way he chose his shots. Um, I know this, this is not, this is a, not a best thing. This is a favorite thing, but I just wanted to highlight that film because it is such a great masterpiece. Um, but ultimately my eighties blend pick is going to be Ghostbusters. Lauren is back to the future part one. Um, I miss you guys. I'm sorry. I wasn't able to be on the show, but we are uh, again in the middle of the East China Sea on the way to Nagasaki (laughs) before we go to Tokyo. And we did get to go to Shanghai probably. Prior to that, which is where Spike Jones shot the exterior shots for her to make L.A. look futuristic in that film. And it, by the way, it was Shanghai literally looks like yeah. her, like the overcast grayness. I felt like I was like literally living in her the whole time yeah. I was there. Yeah, and, and I know we're going long here. I'm sure Gabe is probably uh, pulling his hair out because this is a long <laughs> audio and Lauren's wrapping me up. Um, but yeah, so we miss you guys and I'll talk to you guys soon. But um, hopefully uh, you guys had a great show. I'm sure you did. And uh, I'll talk to you guys next week. Bye. Love you guys. See ya. Dunkirk. Obviously, thank you very much to Kevin for taking the time out of his vacation to record his 80s blend pick. Uh, Jake and I do not know what he texted uh, or what he sent in because we were trying to get him on text. And he's obviously very, very busy uh, tracking out. Yes, what? We Jake have some, uh, some some breaking news if you oh. are so interested. I, I love breaking news. In the middle of the show. Um, yes. Tweeted just a moments ago, 12 minutes yeah. ago. Yes. Uh, Zoe Kravitz will be playing Selena Kyle in the new Batman movie. Stop. Really? Yeah. Ooh. I like her. I think she's very talented. That's kind of awesome. Now, granted, the headline says Selena Kyle, not Catwoman. Okay. I don't know That's if that means anything. I don't know if it means anything, but they're not saying cat. It doesn't say Catwoman. Cecilina that's Cotton. a really good. That's that's really great. I love that. Yeah, Gabe is saying great. Fandango is reporting Catwoman. Fandango is reporting Catwoman. I think she's gonna be Catwoman. Obviously, I mean, if she. But that's really good. That's a good. I I can't wait to see casting ramp up on that movie because I think they're gonna have multiple villains in that film. Oh God, I want to go to that set. Tell them who dear, you are, dear Warner Brothers. <laughs> I would like to go to that set, please. Also, I want Clint Eastwood on the show. <laughs> Teach it. (laughs) 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 Oh my God. I've seen enough uh, Clint Eastwood three ways in my life, which is never something I ever expected to say. But after that, if you haven't seen the mule, that joke makes no sense to you. And if you've seen the mule, you know more about Clint Eastwood three ways than you ever expected to know. You actually see the mule. Uh, All right. (laughs) Audience picks. Andrew DeLeon. Says, Can't Buy Me Love. I love that what movie so much. Movie. Can't Buy Me Love is tremendous. Can't Such an entertaining film. You threw shit on my house. Can't That's like one of the saddest lines. Um, Amanda Young, Katie Simmons, and many, many others uh, went with Back to the Future. Trace, uh, Tracy Stringfellow said American Werewolf in London. I swear I, I saw American Werewolf in London more than once. No, it's got to be. Twice. Isn't, didn't, that. didn't London come out? Oh, no. Paris came out in the 90s. London's the original. 
Yeah. London is the original. Yeah. Yes. Um, Ooh, what a Patrick, good movie. Rick Patrick Baker, Knight baby. said real genius. Real genius is a yeah. great comedy. I'm surprised some of these um, John Hughes movies didn't get more love. Like not a lot of people like Kimberly Sue said Ferris Bueller's Day Off, but I kind of thought we'd get a lot more uh, John Hughes films. Yeah. No, then, uh, no Breakfast Club. No, no, no one that I saw said Breakfast Club. And then TJ Winfield said uh, Die Hard. So thank you very much, TJ, for being on my page. Again, uh, we want to point out how much participation we had this week. Uh, we will do 90s blend at some point in November, and that will bring us up to 2000 blend in December. Uh, you guys want to know what next week's game is? Triggered a little bit off of the 80s because there's a bunch of movies. Oh, yeah, some people were putting up like um, Big Trouble in Little China and The Thing. I saw, yeah. I saw each of those. John mentioned. Carpenter had um, a good 80s. Well, that's why we are going to play next week. Hashtag John Carpenter Blend. Oh, wait. So didn't we do strap that in for that challenge. Gabe says no. No, I guess we did not do that one yet. So you can obviously go to social media. You're going to backtrack through and see what, see if we did. Feels like we might have. You say like we don't. We did. Gabe says we didn't. Well, for now, we're playing John Carpenter Blend uh, with Ruben Fleischer and Edward Norton. We'll find out who is what their picks are on next week's show. You can obviously go to social media and you can play along um, by using the hashtag, uh, hashtag John Carpenter Blend. You can send us your picks uh, via email at realblend at cinemablend.com. That's R-E-E-L-B-L-E-N-D at cinemablend.com. I'm going to take this time to... Also plug the fact that we made it official on last week's show uh, and we're hearing from some people on social media already that we are going to be doing a very special live event uh, in Washington, D.C. Uh, in conjunction with our 100th episode. Are and we we're recording already live in front of people? Sort of sharing. Um, do what now? Are we what? recording live in front of people? No, I don't think we're going to do that um, because we want to have fun while we're with these people and not necessarily work. Um, but if we learned anything from the Chicago episode, uh, we get into most of the debates that you would normally hear on an episode of the show as people want to uh, talk to us and say, um, what do you mean Kill Bill is one movie? Or do you really hate Forrest Gump? And, and questions like that that we love to answer uh, to people in person. And so hopefully a lot of people come out to the D.C. event. Now, um, I made a suggestion that Gabe was working really hard at finding a location for this event. Um, he says that's not necessarily true, but he's running out of time and is going to have to pick something soon. So we'll be able to share details um, in terms of like a date uh, and potential locations soon. So keep it tied uh, right here because, Gabe, we're going to be doing this um, soon-ish. And so we should um, uh, move on. Move on that. Right? Yes? No? Nothing? Gabe's just staring at for me. For God's <laughs> sakes, do your job, Gabe. <laughs> Produce, damn it. Produce, man. <laughs> yes. All right. Uh Kevin will be back with us next week. You can follow him on social media at Kevin McCarthy TV. Jake is at at Jake's Takes. I'm at Sean underscore O'Connell. Uh, of course, follow the entire show. We're picking up a lot of followers on our Twitter feed where people are interacting on a regular basis and forming uh, regional camps. We have Philly Blenders, uh, DMV Blenders, and of course the Chicago Blenders have formed their own little tight-knit family. Uh, we cannot tell you guys how much we appreciate the fact that that type of uh, interaction between us and the show just continue to sort of grow it. Um, the singer Cher does not listen to us. We cleared that up we last week. We don't know that. We don't know that. But share the show with your friends if you think that uh, this is something that they would enjoy. These interviews that we do or the blend games that we play or the way that we react to trailers like Doolittle. Uh, you can get it every single week here on Real Blend. So tune in next week uh, for our next episode where we might have Ed Dorton, if you didn't hear him this week. <laughs> and uh, until then, Dunkirk? Dun, dun, Dunkirk? It's weird when he's not here. Yeah. 
Dunkirk. Dunkirk. Dun, dun, dun? What else Dunkirk. would we say if we didn't say Dunkirk? The good Christopher Nolan movies? The Dark Knight! The Prestige. <laughs> that sucked. No! Stop it. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.